Welcome to The Wellness Connection with your hosts, Roddy Aglis and Peter McCarthy. Our program provides you with timely and relevant information on the state of your health and the topics surrounding it, such as natural remedies, green living, expert opinions, important facts, and more to contribute to your healthy lifestyle. Now, here are Peter McCarthy and Roddy Aglis. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Connection. I'm your co-host, Roddy Aglis. And I'm your co-host, Peter McCarthy. This week on the Wellness Connection, our featured guest is pain management expert and integrative physician, Dr. Ray Jimenez, MD, who will share how a multidisciplinary approach to pain can deliver real benefits. And in our health freedom segment, Roddy, you and I will discuss a possible answer to one of the most emotionally charged issues in healthcare today. Why are prescription drug prices so high? And of course, we'll cover our usual segments, the supplement of the week, the burning question, and the drug-induced nutrient depletion update. But first, Roddy, you have some intriguing information on the value of something called box breathing. Well, that's right, Peter. A simple breathing technique used by first responders and Navy SEALs in stressful and life-threatening situations called box breathing can help to de-stress and calm you down in just a few minutes. Box breathing is a form of present deep conscious breathing in which each exhaled breath is drawn out to last longer than the inhalation. This type of breathing signals the brain to tone down the sympathetic nervous system, which stops the adrenal glands from releasing adrenaline and other hormones responsible for the fight or flight response to danger. Box breathing also stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system that releases relaxing chemicals to counterbalance stress responses of the sympathetic nervous system. Special forces commandos and first responders are just some of the pros who use box breathing to stay calm, even in the toughest situations they may encounter. And they have vouched for its effectiveness at managing stress levels whenever hard decisions need to be made on the fly with people's lives on the line. Once stressed, the body can take up to three quarters of an hour before it winds down to a normal state. Box breathing can offer a natural way to prevent stress and interrupt the fight or flight response that normally overrides normal functions of the mind and body. Box breathing is a deep form of breathing that triggers alpha waves linked with with constructive activity in the brain that are emitted when a person experiences an inspiration. This form of deep breathing is almost as simple as counting. Simply inhale with the diaphragm while counting to five and fill the lungs to maximum capacity. Then exhale slowly to a longer count of five. Ensure to avoid the kind of agitated breathing that shoves the shoulders into the ears as that is what we consider shallow stress building, and will keep the body in fight or flight mode rather than relaxing the stressed mind and body. When filling the lungs, try to expand your stomach as filling the stomach with air opens up space in the belly for the diaphragm, which will move down in order to make room for the expanded lungs. You know, I I found this report uh, really intriguing because you and I both practice meditation on a regular basis, and this is really 
a breathing technique that many practitioners use during their meditation practice mm -hmm. to help to de-stress. Well, I saw an article um, where it was talking about cortisol levels, and it said four minutes of controlled breathing, like we just described, can lower the cascade, the, the cortisol cascade by over 50%. Wow, so when you compare that with the normal recovery time that they talked about in this article of three quarters of an hour, mm -hmm. that's extraordinary. Yeah, it is. And this is something that we as practitioners need to remind our poor clients and patients when they come in and they're dealing with anxiety. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Peter, your report discloses that the spinal cord has more smarts than we previously thought, doesn't it? Yes, it does, Roddy. <laughs> the spinal cord has been revealed to be able to control and process more complex functions previously thought to have been governed by the cerebral cortex. And this study was recently published in the journal Nature Neuroscience. Often the brain is thought of as being the center of complex motor control and function, but it turns out that the spinal cord is smarter than we think. Recently, the University of Western Ontario team has shown the spinal cord is able to process and control complex functions such as the positioning of the hand in external space, which requires sensory inputs from multiple joints than were previously thought to be processed and converted into motor commands by the cerebral cortex. The subjects were asked to maintain hands in a target position, then a three-degree-of-freedom exoskeleton robot technology bumped their hands away from the target by simultaneously flexing or extending the wrist and elbow. The time taken for the muscles in the elbow and wrist to respond to being bumped and whether the responses helped to bring the hand back to the target was measured. Measuring the lag in responses enabled the team to determine whether the process was happening in the brain or the spinal cord. And the study's lead author noted that the responses happened so quickly that the only place from which they could be generated is the spinal circuits. The stretch reflex is generated by the spinal cord and was previously thought to be limited in terms of how it helps movement to act ju just to restore the length of the muscle to whatever happened before the stretch. With this work, the authors are showing that spinal circuitry does something much more complicated. Wow. So, so once again, you know, we've got, a, we've got the primary brain in the skull, we've got the second brain in mm -hmm. uh, the gut, we've got the third brain, as Paul Schulich talked about, in the skin. Mm -hmm. Here's a fourth brain. Right, in the spine. And, in the spine. You're familiar with um, cranial sacral work? Of course, I've so, had some. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So there you go. That, that is a, a very effective technique for working that spinal relationship with spinal brain and emotion and all of that stuff. There you go. That's really fascinating. Yes, it is. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our featured guest for today, Dr. Ray Jimenez, MD. <clears throat> Dr. Ray Jimenez is a consulting physician for Balcones Pain Consultants, a consulting physician for Medical Equations, Inc., and the medical director of Driftwood Recovery. He specializes in addiction medicine, interventional pain procedures, medication management, hormonal management, uh, medical acupuncture, nutrition, herbs, and lifestyle management. Dr. Jimenez began his career in medicine as an anesthesiologist working in such places as MD Anderson Hospital, Texas Heart Institute, 
St. Luke's Hospital, Herman Hospital, St. Joseph's Hospital, and Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Dr. Jimenez is board certified in interventional pain management, acupuncture, naturopathy, medical acupuncture, and addiction medicine. Dr. Jimenez offers his patients the full complement of medication management and interventional techniques, and also acupuncture, prolotherapy, osteopathic manipulations, myofascial release, Qigong healing, nutritional counseling, herbal therapy, psychological counseling, exercise therapy and counseling, including Tai Chi, Qigong, aerobics and strength training, meditation, and many others as well. Dr. Jimenez, welcome to the Wellness Connection. And Dr. Jimenez, you know, many people use the terms complementary medicine or alternative medicine and integrative medicine interchangeably. Why do you choose the latter? Um, well, um, it's a good question. Maybe it's just partly me, but um, I, the term complementary medicine always sort of implies that, you know, whatever you're doing is just sort of an add-on. It's kind of like a little decorative thing, you know, on top of the main thing. Hmm. And uh, alternative medicine implies that, you know, you've got the one main kind of medicine, and then you might want to choose an alternative, you know? So I don't think it gives equal weight to what's going on. And I like the idea of integration of medicine or integrative medicine because it, it kind of weights everything the same. You know, I think it's important to know, you know, uh, that uh, what we call Western medicine or conventional medicine is really the newcomer. I mean, natural medicine has been around thousands and thousands of years, and yet we take the newcomer and, and make it number one, and everything else is complementary. Yes. So I like to do the term integrated. I think that says more about the interconnectedness of all of these things. And I think uh, you have to put them all together and really get a good result in the end. Yeah. Well, you know, you're talking our language here on the Wellness Connection, uh, Dr. Jimenez. And you specifically mentioned that uh, you integrate a combination of Eastern and Western healthcare techniques in your patient's care. What led you to do that? Well, uh, you know, the simple answer is better care for the patient. <laughs> I, I think, you know, as I went along, I realized that, you know, there were limitations in what I was doing, you know, and I, I, I have a great respect for Western medicine. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm glad for everything we have, but sometimes you need a little bit of something different, a little bit of different of an approach and I think you have to use some of these other techniques. So I found that I could put more tools in the toolbox, if you will, by learning different things. And it wasn't just Eastern Western, it was Northern Southern too, you know? So uh, we, we just tried whatever we can try that's going to help that doesn't harm, you know? And uh, that was the, the, the path that we took in treating patients at my clinic and where I'm at now. And, uh, that has led, I think, to better care. Okay, well, you, you, I'm going to follow up with that uh, for just a moment. Uh, I'm intrigued about Eastern Western, which, of course, I think most people are aware uh, Eastern focusing primarily on traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. But uh, talk to us a little bit about Northern Southern. What did you mean about that? Well, I use that 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 term loosely. You know. For example, the acupuncture that I'm involved with 
is not just traditional Chinese medicine. That's a big part of what I'm doing. But we have to remember, you know, Europe, like uh, France and Italy and Germany, uh, are very much involved in acupuncture and their techniques and things that have come out of those traditions that are very different from what we're doing in traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, some of the techniques that I've used are from Mexico. Some are from Canada. Uh, certainly Japan and Indonesia have played a big role in the evolution of cupping and needling and acupuncture and all of these different things. So I, you know, don't just go to one place. I try to look at wherever I can uh, get the information. Um, and uh, I, I think that's really important when you're, you're looking at, at true integration. You know, there's differences in what we call Western medicine in Europe and in the United States, you know, and yet we call them both Western medicine. Uh, in Europe, they're much more likely to in, integrate uh, herbology into uh, things. So I think uh, the, the idea really is, let's not name a direction, let's just say integration. <laughs> and also homeopathy in Germany. and Homeopathy, you know, and, and, and some of the things that have been done, you know, with energy medicine, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, it, that can be a helpful thing. And, you know, and people want to say, where's the proof of that? And where we, well, you can ask some of the patients and, you know, they haven't been harmed with it. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll try that too. That's right. Yeah. So you're a, a medical doctor, you're an MD, but you're also board yes, certified in acupuncture, right? Yes. And so Mike, before we go on, I've got, this is a two-part question, but first I want you to explain to our listeners a little bit, for those who they, they know, a lot of people know that acupuncture is sticking needles in you somehow, um, and some want mm -hmm. to Work, but could you explain to our listeners what the principles of acupuncture are and what you're trying to accomplish with acupuncture? Sure. Uh, you know, acupuncture is, uh, is an interesting thing. It's fascinated me for a long time. Um, it, uh, it, it's, it's only kind of a mystery because we're just not used to it yet, I guess. I mean, most people couldn't explain to you how an MRI works either, and yet we're happy to jump into one, you know? And acupuncture really has to do, well, it depends on what we're talking about. Are we talking in Chinese thought or are we talking in, in, in Western thought? So I'm going to go just to Western thought and, and tell you what we think about acupuncture. We think that the, the cells create electrical fields because of the electrical gradient that goes across the cell and the membrane, the so-called sodium-potassium pump. And this produces an electrical gradient, which then produces a field. That field is propagated outward along the path of least resistance. And that seems to be the myofascial planes. The myofascial planes are lined with this material called the fascia, which is very electron dense and it behaves almost like a, a semiconductor. And the electrical field is propagated outward. Uh, there are places on the surface where there's probably going to be a nerve, an artery, a vein, or all three that tend to have a lower resistance to electrical uh, flow or electron transmission. And those places are what we seem to think are the points in acupuncture. 
So if something is going on with a cell in the body and uh, it is injured, let's just say cardiac, for example, because we're real familiar with that one, the ECG, the, uh, the amount of electricity that comes out at, at, at certain places that we monitor can tell us an awful lot about the state of the cellular health in the heart. For example, the ST segment rises when it's ischemic. So if we could suppose that that's what's going on with the other organs, then could we then backtrack? Could we then put an electrical input into these input points and influence the cell at its location within the body? And that's kind of what we think we're doing. There are many other things that are going on with acupuncture. For example, the stimulation of endorphins and keflins, dynorphins. That's been looked at a lot, and we know that that does occur. Um, there's also things that are happening at higher levels. You know, if you would, the, 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 the mind and the, the spirit, you know. Um, in acupuncture, we believe that body, mind, spirit is one word. It is inseparable. And you treat one, you treat all, okay? We separate these in order to understand them better. But in real life practice, you can't separate them. You have to treat the body, the mind, and the spirit. And this is what we're doing in, in acupuncture. The Chinese had different descriptions. The Japanese had different descriptions, et cetera. But, you know, it was a different time. They spoke a different language. And so they might say things like Jing and Qi and Shen, whereas we might say things like body, mind, and spirit. Mm -hmm. But essentially, we're talking about the same thing. And there's different ways. Certainly, the word chi cannot just be translated. Uh, there's at least 30-something kinds of chi that you can easily get into and probably many more when you get into the esoterica of it. So uh, acupuncture is a, is a different sort of thing, but it treats the whole body. What I tell people is acupuncture doesn't fix anything. What it does is it encourages your body to fix it. And in that okay. sense, it's more of a healing treatment. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. We've got uh, just a couple minutes before break. But uh -huh. we're, we're intrigued since both of us have a background in nutrition. What role does diet play in both the creation and the treatment of pain? It's probably the the biggest role. <laughs> I, I think diet is everything. Um, when you take an organism like ourselves, it, it requires a certain fuel. And, you know, the diet is that fuel. You're putting in the nutrients, you're putting in the minerals, you're putting in all of the things that the body needs to run right, you know. Uh, I've often told patients that, you know, if you want to uh, race a car like in NASCAR, you better put good fuel in it. You put kerosene in it, you're going to lose the race. And mm -hmm. I think we're the same way. I think diet sets the stage for everything. And so I think it's one of the most important factors. And then exercise comes into it as in stirring the pot. Well, you know, yeah. you've got to move and you've got to have the right things to make you move. Mm -hmm. The rest of it is just icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. And you bring up, um, you know, people in pain, avoid exercise. And here you're talking about exercise. So what do you think? Uh, Got to move. You know, 
So people literally, if they're in pain, they want to avoid that. So we've just got a, a, a few minutes here, a minute. Um, why do you think exercise is important in the treatment of pain, and how can people get over the idea that they can't do it if it's you know going to cause pain? Well, I, I think that um, you know um, you need to be able to move because deconditioning plays such a huge role in in the evolution of pain and what's going on. You know, diet may play the role in in inflammation and inflammation out of control, but uh, lack of movement plays a role in just plain stagnation. The body is meant to move; it has to move. Uh, of course, we don't want to move when we're in pain, but you have to move to get out of the pain. Laying in bed will just make your pain worse. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, let, let's let's take a break right now, but, but uh, we, we're going to come back and talk to you some more. We'll continue uh, our interview with Dr. Ray Jimenez, MD, after a brief message from our sponsor. You're listening to The Wellness Connection on Voice America Digital Radio Network. Balance and good health, two essential building blocks for a full and rich life, but sometimes in our complex and stressful world, both can be lost, and you need to find a natural way to get them back. Enter CBD oil, a natural approach to restoring harmony to your body and your life. But not just any CBD oil. For natural results, you want to be sure the CBD oil you use is produced the right way. Wave Organics offers pure CBD oil from hemp raised naturally on farms in Colorado. The oil is extracted using supercritical CO2, which is free of toxic solvents. In fact, Wave controls every step in the process, offering quality control and natural approaches from seed to shelf. Visit WAAYB.com to learn more and use the code WellnessConnection for a 10% discount on your first order. Wave Organics, pure natural CBD. You're listening to The Wellness Connection. If you have a question or comment for Peter Aradia, please send it via email to the Wellness Connection AHI at gmail.com. That's the Wellness Connection AHI at gmail.com. Now, let's return to this week's show. And welcome back to The Wellness Connection and our continuing interview with Dr. Ray Jimenez. Dr. Jimenez's so called conventional medicine focuses solely on suppression of symptoms. In contrast, tell our listeners why you think it's important to treat the whole person, the body, mind, and spirit. Okay. Well, like we talked about before, you know, body, mind, spirit is really considered to be one entity. So it's not just important to treat the whole person. You can't not treat the whole person. Uh, I understand the idea that conventional medicine is focusing on suppression of symptoms and such, but it, it does what needs to be done at the time. You know, I've often told people that if you get into a car wreck and you tear your aorta, pray to God they don't take you to an acupuncturist. You need, you need a cardiovascular surgeon. Mm. But if you have a constitutional problem, pray to God they don't take you to a cardiovascular surgeon. You, mm. you need to be treated like somebody like an acupuncturist who can treat the entire body with something that's healing, like acupuncture. Uh, it's, it's important to have both. Uh, Western medicine is extremely good at treating acute 
problems. And, uh, you know, uh, natural medicine is, is extremely good at treating uh, the constitutional issues. So um, it is important. And I don't think you can not treat the whole person. I think you always do. And some people pretend not to, but I think they are anyway. So to follow up with that question, how much do you think the Western societal mindset towards uh, healthcare has to do with that? I, I've heard a really interesting observation in a book I read not long ago that said that Western thinking uh, thinks about the body, that everything happen, that happens below the neck is separate from what happens in the brain. Do you think that has an influence on uh, what you're just talking about? Uh, absolutely, I do. And it's a shame that it is that way. Um, but I, I see that a lot of times. There, there are many people, including patients and physicians, who feel like you just bring your body in and drop it off and pick it, at, pick it up at five when it's done, you know, and uh, it just doesn't really work. Um, I think that... Um, the idea of holism in the truest sense, using everything and treating everything is the way to do it. I think when you, tr when you allow people to be treated from a whole person kind of point of view, you get actual healing. You know, Western medicine can sort of put the patches on and keep things together while you heal. But natural medicine actually gets you to heal by putting in the nutrients, the herbs, the things like that that we need so uh, you know, great value to both both are very important oops sorry what role do you see yeah. prescription medication in your treatment of pain for patients well you know on the one hand thank god we have them and on the other hand we better be pretty careful <laughs> um you know this uh, opioid crisis that we're looking at right now is is a big deal you know we we managed to kill more people with overdose in one year than we did total in all of Vietnam. So uh, it is an important thing. It is a big deal. And uh, these are basically the results of prescription medicines that have gone awry. Uh, remember, even heroin was at one point a medication that was used in Western medicine, um, invented by Bayer in the early 1900s. You know, uh, it just went astray when it went to the streets and was misused. And whether it's a prescription or a not a prescription, if the medication is misused, you've got a potential for problems. But, uh, gosh, there's a lot of things that I see, you know, near miracles with, with some of the medications. Um, rescuing a heroin addict with a drug like Suboxone has saved lives. I've seen patients given antidepressants that saved their lives. I've seen antibiotics used that saved lives. I've also seen all of these drugs cause harm. And uh, so you have to be careful with what you're doing. Uh, again, I'm speaking towards true holism, you know, true integration of medicine. So you've also stated that herbs can play a role in this treatment. So tell us more about that. Um, the herbs, I, I just, I love herbs. I like playing with herbs because they're so multifunctional, you know? And the way that I try to do things is I try to start with the ultimate multivitamin, which is your diet, okay? And we try to get people on a good diet with basically real food, you know? To, to paraphrase somebody like Michael Pollan, I think um, 
You just need to know about five things. You need to eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. You need to move. That gets back to the other question. And you need to smile. You know, uh, you need to have mental health along with this, which gets back to the body, mind, spirit. Um, so herbs are something that I use to stimulate the, the body, whereas nutrients are something that I use to feed the body. And I think the herbs can make the nutrients work better and the body work better. And then you have this multifunction that you get with herbs that's, that's just wonderful, okay? So I, I really like using herbs. It doesn't mean all herbs are safe. You know, be careful. There's some that you have to be very, you know, cautious with. But for the most part, it's a safe way to treat things. When it comes to pain, what are your favorite herbs that you like to use? I like, uh, if it's strictly pain analgesia, I like herbs like Corydalis. Um, I like um, Jamaican dogwood does a good job of things. I like uh, things like turmeric. Uh, and uh, I like to use Boswellia. Um, these are all inflammatory modulators and analgesics that we use in the world of, of pain. But sometimes it's something else, too. You know, there's sometimes like it's maybe eyebright would be used, and it, it can pick the mood up, and that in itself can change the pain state. So it's not always going straight for the pain. Sometimes you, you have to, again, look at the whole person and mm -hmm. see where they're at and see what you're trying to achieve with the herb. So, in looking at that whole person, Doc, how does hormonal dysfunction contribute to various pain states? Well, um, this is probably a big deal right now, more so than it's ever been, because there's a lot of uh, xenoestrogens, false estrogens in our environment, and a lot of times this is leading to states of estrogen dominance. The stress responses in our environment are also leading to that. And we see when people get into an estrogen-dominant state, they can very often become um, hyperinflammatory. Uh, sometimes that's an indirect effect from maybe weight gain of estrogen dominance leading to inflammatory mediators being secreted by the fat cells. So uh, it's important to be in balance hormonally. The other thing that you can get into hormonally is at the next level in the mind or in the spirit, you can get to the point where people are dysfunctioning in mood. And that alone can lead to an increase in your pain. I don't think I have to tell anybody that if you have a pain of, let's say it's five over 10, I can come into the room and just totally stress you out. And that five is going to become a nine, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's easy to manipulate pain because pain is a perception and uh, it does change based on the state that you're in. So mm -hmm. hormones make a big difference. Yeah. So you, you touched briefly on stress as a component of this. Talk a little more mm -hmm. about that. Uh, what, what do you see as stress uh, playing? What role do you see it playing in pain? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a big role. It's a huge role. Um, the pain state itself can create a stressor. Stress is basically anything that's a change to the body. And um, the body responds to changes with uh, the fight-or-flight response. And in that fight-or-flight response, we start to release 
mediators like epinephrine and norepinephrine and cortisol. And uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, they, they'll change the blood flow so that it goes to the important places as far as getting away, but not the important places as far as health itself. Um, it might steal energy from the reproductive system or from the GI system or from the immune system. And, you know, after all, how important is it to heal if you're about to get eaten, you know? And that's what your body thinks when you're in a stress state. It thinks you're about to be eaten. So this redistribution of blood flow and um, importance of things makes a huge difference in the pain state. And uh, one of the things that I recommend, you know, I, I tell people to do exercise and I, I encourage them to do something that I came up with called 30 times five. And basically you walk, 30 minutes, you do 30 push-ups, upper body, you do 30 crunches, mid-body, you do 30 squats, lower body, and then you do 30 minutes of meditation, the forgotten exercise. And the idea is to balance out the autonomic nervous system, the fight or flight versus the stop and heal. And if you can balance that out and lower your cortisol, it goes a long way, okay? Cortisol actually shuts down a lot of things and makes the pain worse. So, Doc, uh, we've got just under a minute left. How can our, uh, our listeners find out more about you and your activities? Well, um, probably the easiest thing is to just go to the website at uh, Balcones Pain Consultants. Uh, we're here in Austin, Texas, and uh, we have several locations. And I do most of my work through them. Uh, I also do uh, a lot of work through Driftwood Recovery, which is a uh, inpatient, uh, a residential treatment program, basically. And uh, so we do a lot with patients that have addiction problems. But one of the things we specialize is in uh, addiction within a pain state. And so patients that have trouble with pain problems who become addicts, that's our specialty in treating those kinds of people. Well, Dr. Jimenez, we know you have so much to share with us and our listeners. I'm hoping are going to visit those websites and get more information on how they can help themselves. I think it's fascinating that you work specifically with people who, because of pain, become you know addicted. And I think that's a very amazing service. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Dr. Ray Jimenez, MD, for joining us on the Well Connection. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. All right. We hope to speak to you soon. We'll be right okay. back after this brief message from our sponsor. You're listening to the Wellness Connection on Voice America Digital Radio Network. Do you or a family member have trouble concentrating, staying on task, remembering things? Does everyday life stress you out or are you in a bad mood? Well, we may have just the solution. Neurobiologics' new nutritional formula, Full Focus, created by leading neurotologist and neuroimmune specialist, Dr. Kendall Stewart, with 12 active ingredients carefully crafted by a physician to maximize brain performance, memory, and mood. 
For more information on this product and to view a video by Dr. Stewart explaining how Full Focus works and may be helpful to you or your family, please visit neurobiologics.com. Neurobiologics, where our mission is your health. You're listening to The Wellness Connection. If you have a question or comment for Peter Aradia, please send it via email to the Wellness Connection AHI at gmail.com. That's the Wellness Connection AHI at gmail.com. Now, let's return to this week's show. you know what that means. It's post time, time for the supplement of the week. And what supplement are we posting this week? Well, Peter, we talked about DCI, D-chiro-inositol, regarding blood sugar, but DCI gets the good housekeeping seal of efficiency. <laughs> yes, it does. Studies are now showing that d inositol DCI, increases autophagy. Autophagy, what? Yeah, there you go. Okay, here we go down this rabbit hole. As a normal part of metabolic processes in the human body, cells are constantly becoming damaged. It gets worse as we age, experience stress, and deal with more and more free radical damage. This is where autophagy comes in. Simply put, autophagy is the body's housekeeping mechanism, which involves clearing damaged cells from the body, including old cells that serve no functional purpose, but still linger inside tissues and organs. Yeah, we talked about this with Dr. Kendall Stewart in a, in a previous show. And the, the reason it's so important to remove old and damaged cells is because they can trigger inflammatory pathways and contribute to various diseases. And another cool thing about our housekeeping system is the autophagy process basically works by using waste produced inside the cell to create new building material that aids in repair and regeneration. Uh, It's our body's most efficient cellular recycling program. There you go. Mm -hmm. Great to recycle again. And yes, it shows that autophagy regulates the functions of the cell's mitochondria, which is the power plant of the cell, and which helps to produce energy while preventing damage by oxidative stress. Internal rest. There you are. It clears damaged endoplasmic reticulum. That's a 25-cent word for a system of cavities and tiny connecting canals that occupy much of the internal fluid of the cell and function especially in the movement of materials within the cell. It protects the nervous system and encourages growth of brain and nerve cells. And autophagy seems to improve cognitive function, brain structure, and neuroplasticity. It supports growth of heart cells and protects against heart disease. It enhances the immune system by eliminating intracellular pathogens, foreign invaders. And it defends against misfolded toxic proteins that contribute to a number of amyloid diseases, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. It protects the stability of DNA, and it uh, prevents damage to healthy tissue and organs, and potentially fights cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, and other illnesses. Dr. Stewart has just formulated Neurobiologic's new DCI formula, Metabolic Stimulator, which combines d inositol and four other nutrient cofactors to enhance the necessary biochemical steps needed for intracellular energy. Following a well-balanced diet and daily exercise can positively impact your metabolism, but adding metabolic stimulator to your daily routine could help regulate glucose levels 
and ensure insulin function remains at their highest capacities uh, as well as support autophagy and helps to reduce inflammation. Yeah, it's a great new product, and uh, we certainly are grateful to Neurobiologics uh, mm-hmm. for, for uh, creating it. Thanks, Thank you, Neurobiologics and Dr. Stewart. And now it's time for the burning question where we answer those important health questions that you, the listeners, send in to us. It's important to note that any diagnosis of disease can only be provided by your medical doctor or other licensed healthcare professional. None of the information we present is intended for the diagnosis or treatment of disease. Today's burning question was submitted by Radia. By Christina from Abilene. And Christina says, Radia, I have a very low tolerance for stress. And when the slightest things happen with the kids or my family, I fly off the handle and it's very difficult for me to calm down. A friend uh, told me that it could be genetic. Why is this so difficult and how can I get a handle on this? And Peter, have you ever noticed that there are some folks that go through life and no matter what comes up, they just glide right through it while others react to the slightest ripple? Certainly have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, believe it or not, there is a genetic connection. The COMT, genetic mutation, for example, Folks with this genetic SNP have a tough time down-regulating their excitatory neurotransmitters. And before we go on, Peter, give our listeners a clear understanding of what neurotransmitters are and how they work. Certainly, Radia. Inside the brain are billions of neurons that are connected by messengers that transmit electrical impulses from one cell to another, allowing communication and thought to occur in the brain. The brain uses neurotransmitters to tell your heart to beat, your lungs to breathe, and your stomach to digest. There are two kinds, inhibitory and excitatory. Excitatory, like epinephrine and norepinephrine, also known as adrenaline and noradrenaline, are not necessarily exciting. They are what stimulate the brain. Those that calm the brain and help create balance are called inhibitory, like serotonin, GABA, and dopamine. These are what I like to call our feel-good neurotransmitters. Inhibitory neurotransmitters work synergistically to counterbalance the excitatory neurotransmitters. Yes, and these inhibitory neurotransmitters are easily depleted when the excitatory neurotransmitters are overactive. When out of balance, they can cause adverse symptoms, such as becoming easily agitated or angered, uh, mild to severe anxiety or depression, poor concentration, weight problems, or sleep problems. And depression, for example, can result if serotonin is in short supply. Neurotransmitter levels can be depleted many ways. As a matter of fact, it's estimated that 86% of Americans have some optimal neurotransmitter levels. To top it off, if you have a genetic SNP in your neurotransmitter markers such as COMT, MAO-A, MAO-B, GAD12, stress, poor diet, neurotoxins, drugs, prescription or recreational use, alcohol and caffeine, all of these can cause these genes to be expressed, creating symptoms. Some of the supplements you may need are 5-HTP, which is the precursor for serotonin, GABA, L-theanine, magnesium, B6, and B-complex in general, 
uh, one supplement that I really like is it's called Mood Food ES by Zymogen. And if you've done your 23andMe and need help deciphering your genomic profile and want to test your neurotransmitter metabolites with a simple home urinalysis, you can contact me at Lake Hills Pharmacy at 512-308-9355. That's 608. Goodness. <laughs> I don't even remember my own phone number. <laughs> it's 512-608-9355. That, again, is 512-608-9355. Or send us an email at thewellnessconnectionahi at gmail.com. You can submit your own burning question by sending it to us at thewellnessconnectionahi at gmail.com. Again, that's thewellnessconnectionahi at gmail.com. And tune in every week to hear if your question is being answered on the air. And we'll be right back with important information about drug-induced nutrient depletion and our health freedom update after this brief message from our sponsor. You're listening to The Wellness Connection on Voice America Digital Radio Network. Do you have trouble with nervousness, trouble relaxing, or turning your brain off at night to fall asleep? then we may have a natural solution just for you. Calming Cream from Neurobiologics, created by a leading neurosurgeon, provides five essential ingredients to help relax the neurotransmitters of the brain. Who wouldn't want to relax or wind down with a great smelling lotion? Visit neurobiologics.com or coffeewithdrstewart.com for details. Neurobiologics, we are changing lives one formula at a time. You're listening to The Wellness Connection. If you have a question or comment for Peter Aradia, please send it via email to thewellnessconnectionahi at gmail.com. That's thewellnessconnectionahi at gmail.com. Now, let's return to this week's show. Welcome back to The Wellness Connection. And this week's drug-induced nutrient depletion update features... The nutrient corticosteroids, such as prednisone, depletes our beta carotene, B6, folic acid, vitamin C, vitamin D, calcium, magnesium, potassium, selenium, and zinc. Signs of beta carotene deficiency can be uh, night blindness, dry skin, and decreased resistance to infections. And signs of vitamin B6 deficiency are acne, anemia, ADD, degeneration of the peripheral nerves, depression, hair loss, Irritability, learning disabilities, weakness, and poor metabolism of protein, carbohydrate, and fat. Signs of folic acid deficiency include anemia, irritability, apathy, anorexia, a sore tongue, headache, palpitations, forgetfulness, hostility, paranoid behavior, GI disturbance, and diarrhea. And signs of vitamin C deficiency include fatigue, depression, and connective tissue defects, such as gingivitis and rash, uh, internal bleeding, and impaired wound healing. And signs of vitamin D deficiency include osteomalacia, burning sensation in the mouth and throat, insomnia, nervousness, and weakened immune system. And signs of uh, calcium deficiency are decrease in the formation of bone and teeth, blood clotting, uh, cell membrane permeability, neuromuscular activity, 
heart rhythm, nerve tranquilization, nerve transmission, and muscle and growth and, con uh, and contraction. And signs of magnesium deficiency include weakness, personality changes, muscle tremors, tetany, muscle twitches, especially in the face and eye muscles, alopecia, swollen gums, skin lesions, lesions of the small arteries, and myocardial, myocardial necrosis. And signs of potassium deficiency is weakness and fatigue, muscle cramps, muscle aches and stiffness, tingling and numbness, heart palpitations, breathing difficulties, digestive symptoms, and mood changes. Signs of selenium deficiency include, and this goes along with iodine deficiency, uh, contributing to Cash and Beck disease, a myocardial necrosis, which is, leads to the weakening of the heart. And finally, signs of zinc deficiency. And this signs are decreases bone metabolism and structure, protein digestion, energy production, decreases insulin activity, decreases normal taste, impairs wound healing, decreases your immune system, and skin's normal oil gland function. So before you take any medication, I recommend that uh, folks do their research. And if you still decide to take uh, it or have to take these corticosteroids, be sure to talk to a qualified pharmacist or wellness professional. Absolutely. And now it's time for our health freedom segment. And each week during this segment, we'll usually be talking with renowned experts and advocates about our most precious right, the right to bodily integrity, the right to decide what we put into our bodies and how to care for them. Some of us call that health freedom. However, we're going to switch gears on this program and talk for a while about a subject that both concerns and enrages many people, the high cost of prescription drugs. Yes, we are. With thanks to the World Health News for data, to start off with, the generally accepted estimated cost of developing a new drug is over $1 billion, billion dollars. That's a pharmaceutical industry estimate, but some analysts suggest the actual cost is less than $125 million. Yeah, even within Big Pharma, there is some disagreement as to what numbers are accurate. So, for example, according to Reuters, Chief Executive Officer Andrew Witte of GlaxoSmithKline says, quote, the high cost is one of the greatest myths of the industry and was an average figure that included money spent on drugs that ultimately failed, unquote. But why do drug prices keep getting raised higher and higher? You know, if, if it's not because of costs or curing or controlling disease, then why? I mean, some critics suggest it's simply because they can. Well, that may be, but those price increases don't come without consequences. Better drugs are not being developed at these inflated prices. Most new drugs provide no clinical advantage, and one in five can cause serious harm. For example, according to 2012 data, 11 out of 12 cancer drugs cost more than $100,000 per, per year, and only one of these extended life for just a few weeks. Yeah, in contrast, you know, Big Pharma dipped into its deep pockets to air more than 1.3 million television ads, and we're all familiar with those nasty little drug ads. Uh, in 2016 for prescriptions and over-the-counter drugs and other health messages that cost about $4.6 billion. 
typically they claim to treat one ailment, but come with a long list of mostly laughable side effects stated at the end, which are often worse than the original ailments they were said to treat. So, Roddy, as you well know, I'm a fan of looking at the numbers. Let's follow the math of the inflated costs and see where it takes us. Well, to start, Big Pharma estimates that to bring a drug to market, it costs $1.3 billion. Let's subtract the $650 million for profits that they would have been making if they invested in stocks and bonds, which are not research costs at all, rather a high figure for profits they might have made and is not a real cost that should be recouped. That leaves a balance of $650 million. Well, then from that number, you can subtract another $325 million that's subsidized by taxpayers through academic and public laboratories, such as the CDC, NIH, etc., tax credits and deductions granted to Big Pharma, and purchasing medicines with taxpayer monies. Research costs for cancer drugs are even lower as most of the basic research and thousands of clinical trials are paid by the taxpayer via the National Cancer Institute and other foundations. So that leaves a real balance of $325 million. Well, you can then subtract an additional 30% as uh, the $1.3 billion is based on most costly one-fifth of drugs rather than, than the average reduce, uh, reduced by 30% will correct this distortion, leaving the balance at $230 million. So, but actually, you know, the median cost is more accurate since a few expensive projects always inflate the overall average, but smaller and shorter trials lessen the average. Making this adjustment to the median leaves a balance of $170 million. Any large estimate of drug costs inflates the cost of research, and unfortunately, there's not an accurate way to accurately estimate costs, since the cost of discovery varies widely, from an inexpensive trial to a costly 30-year trial. When you adjust for basic research to reflect a more accurate net median, the balance drops down to $125 million for developing drugs. But then again, in all fairness, you must also remove taxpayers subsidizing $4.6 million in advertising, which will put the actual balance and cost to less than $125 million. Make that $4.6 billion, which is a far cry from the $1.3 billion originally claimed. So what's the result? The cost to discover new drugs is roughly one-sixth of what Big Pharma claims, and 1.3% of revenues after deducting tax, taxpayers' subsidies. Yeah, every year, drug companies raise their drug prices by 20 to 25%. In any other segment of the business community, this would be considered price gouging. Significantly, no other country allows this pricing strategy. The prices are continually increased regardless of value or cost. So put it this way, would you pay more for last year's car model and one five years uh, older? So why do we not think in terms of effectiveness, or in this case, non-effectiveness, and tell patients about treatments uh, in those terms? 
Now, why are we paying and continuing to pay more for medicines that don't actually cure? That's right, because aside from antibiotics, which are now failing due to resistance, and hepatitis C, there's not an actual cure for anything. Just delays to treat symptoms just enough to keep you coming back for more and spending more money. The governing bodies that are in place to protect us should be negotiating these spiraling prices downward in our best interest. In other words, we should be seen as more than just dollar signs. And you know, it's funny because today I actually, right today, I had a conversation with a woman who had breast cancer and they wanted to put her on tamoxifen or the doctor wanted to. And she said, I'm doing all of these, you know, natural remedies and uh, she was doing some vitamin C IV drips and things like that. And the doctor laughed at her, scoffed and said, well, I wonder how much you paid for that. And she said, well, actually, I paid $3,600. How much is your chemotherapy? And the doctor just kind of looked at her and said, and then she said, and uh, according to the, to the statistics, the uh, number of cures from the medicine that you're, you know, describing is 1% cure. 1%. And she said, no, that's not true. She said, oh, I, you know, 40%. And she said, and she went into this whole thing. And so the doctor looked it up and said, well, actually, it is 1% to 1.3% cure. She said, obviously, you've done your homework. Wow. <laughs> that, that was one empowered patient. And that's good right. for her for standing up Absolutely. to the so-called authority figure. Yeah. And that's all the time we have for today, but be sure to tune in next week. And of course, be sure to submit your burning question. The next one we answer may be yours. I'm your co-host, Roddy Iglis. And I'm your co-host, Peter McCarthy. So long for now from the Wellness Connection, brought to you by Wave and Neurobiologics. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Wellness Connection with Roddy Iglis and Peter McCarthy. Be sure to join us for another episode next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.